Welcome to One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and thrilling tales from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults will explore some of my favorite moments from Western trans history. I love history because it's all my favorite kind of gossip. Scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me directly anyways. I'll be focusing pretty much exclusively on Western trans history from the Victorian era to today, mostly because that's where my knowledge base is. Hopefully at some point I'll be able to bring on some wonderful experts and raconteurs from other regions to cover their histories. If you happen to be such an expert, give me a ring and let's chat about it. For our first episode, I want to bring you perhaps my favorite mystery from the 20th century. Whatever happened to Rachel? Long forgotten by even rock aficionados, Rachel, a Mexican-American transsexual, remains an enigmatic figure in the career of one of the founders of glam rock, the grandfather of punk, Lou Reed. Lou Reed was born Louis Allen Reed on March 2nd, 1942, in Brooklyn, New York. He grew up on Long Island in a Jewish family, though later said his only god was rock and roll. During his teens, he began experimenting with drugs and played in several mostly terrible bands. After his first year in college, he came home anxious and depressed. Even worse, his parents suspected he had homosexual urges. Being that this was the early 1960s, when homosexuality was not only still illegal, but also considered a mental illness in the DSM, they did what many parents did to their suspected homosexual children. They subjected Lou to shock treatment. Lou would later describe the experience. They put the thing down your throat so you don't swallow your tongue, and they put electrodes on your head. That's what was recommended in Rockland State Hospital to discourage homosexual feelings. The effect is that you lose your memory and become a vegetable. You can't read a book because you get to page 17 and have to go right back to page 1 again. In spite of this, or perhaps because of it, Lou returned to Syracuse University and completed a bachelor's degree in English by 1964. At this time, Lou had been introduced to heroin by a dealer named Jaws and, as a result, had gotten hepatitis. He moved to New York City and worked as an in-house songwriter for Pickwick Records. Lou was the antithesis of the West Coast flower power movement of the late 1960s. 
Instead of the peace and love that drove the hippies, Lou found inspiration in books like Hubert Selby Jr.'s Last Exit to Brooklyn that chronicled the lives of the misfits, junkies, and sex workers whose outsider status Lou, with his history of depression and homosexuality-induced shock treatment, identified with. Speeding forward a bit, Lou met Welsh musician John Cale, and together they eventually formed one of the least popular but most artistically significant bands of the 20th century, the Velvet Underground. The Velvet Underground were part of Andy Warhol's factory scene, a scene that revolved around the back room at Max's Kansas City, where musicians, performance artists, drug users, and bona fide weirdos would rub elbows with transsexuals like Candy Darling and the recently departed Holly Woodlong, both of whom I'll cover in depth in future episodes. Transsexuals and drag queens were in, often literally hanging off ringleader Warhol himself. Finally, Lou had found the misfits and outsiders he'd felt were his people. Lou's friendships in and around both The Factory and Max's Kansas City would go on to inspire his most famous songs like Walk on the Wild Side, Heroin, and Candy Says. Candy says I've come to hate my body While not exactly dominating the charts, the Velvet Underground had just that, underground appeal. Brian Eno would famously say in 1982 that though their debut album only sold 30,000 records, everyone who bought one of those 30,000 copies started a band. But despite this underground success, by August 1970, Lou had quit the Velvet Underground and began plotting out a solo career in the emergent genre of glam rock. He cut an album, Transformer, with David Bowie, while the two carried on a much-whispered-about and tumultuous friendship, homaged in Todd Haynes' brilliant film, Velvet Goldmine. And this, dear listeners, is where Rachel comes into the picture. Rachel was a tall, long-haired, Mexican-American transsexual. Like Lou, she frequented Max's Kansas City, though never seems to have grabbed the attention of Andy Warhol in the way that Candy Darling, Holly Woodlawn, or Jackie Curtis did. Little is known of her life before Lou, except for her dead name, which I won't repeat here. We don't know where or when she was born. We don't know what type of work, if any, she did. We don't even really know how she identified. Various people have called her a transsexual, a transvestite, and a drag queen, though it seems history has settled on the word transsexual. But what we do know is that in 1973, this tall, lanky, Mexican-American trans woman met famous rock star Lou Reed and sort of didn't really care. Or at least, that's how Lou remembered it. Lou told Bambi Magazine how they met. 
It was in a late night club in Greenwich Village. I'd been up for days as usual and everything was at that super real glowing stage. I walked in there and there was this amazing person, this incredible head kind of vibrating out of it all. Rachel was wearing this amazing makeup and dress and was obviously in a different world to anyone else in the place. Eventually, I spoke, and she came home with me. I rapped for hours and hours while Rachel just sat there, looking at me, saying nothing. At the time, I was living with a girl, a crazy blonde lady, and I kind of wanted us all three to live together, but somehow it was too heavy for her. Rachel just stayed on, and the girl moved out. Rachel was completely disinterested in who I was and what I did, Nothing could impress her. He'd hardly heard my music and didn't like it all that much when he did. Rachel knows how to do it for me. No one else ever did before. Rachel's something else. Just as a side note, like many people who knew Rachel, Lou used female and male pronouns interchangeably when speaking about her. We unfortunately don't know what Rachel's preference was, but I'm erring on the side of caution here and using she. Lou was in a low period at the time. His drug use was out of control. By all accounts, meeting Rachel in 1973 at the 82 Club, a drag bar on 4th Street around the corner from the legendary CBGBs, helped bring him out of that turmoil. He was happier with Rachel in his life. Many people, including a jilted Lou, would later imply or come right out and say that Lou's relationship with Rachel was for publicity and street cred, part of building his mid-70s brand as the gay, druggy, glam rock star. But by 1973, Whatever glamour transsexuals and drag queens had had in the Warhol scene had been spent. Warhol had already moved on to other obsessions, tiring of the flamboyant characters showing up at the factory to demand money and attention. So it seems unlikely that the perpetually too cool for school Lou Reed would have started dating Rachel purely to add exoticism to his image. Despite being unimpressed by Lou's career, Rachel and Lou became a bit of an underground celebrity couple. The two were photographed together regularly throughout the mid-70s, and Rachel even appears with Lou in a penthouse spread by the illustrious rock photographer Mick Rock. With Lou, Rachel hung out with scene luminaries like Patti Smith and Richard Soule, Rachel is credited as inspiring much of Lou's most beloved 70s music, including the albums Berlin, Sally Can't Dance, and Coney Island Baby, the title track of which is said to be a love song for Rachel. Somehow, we have very little record of what she had to say during this period, but one of the only quotes we do have seems to challenge Lou's claims 
that Rachel both didn't know and didn't care who Lou Reed famous rock star was. In Please Kill Me, The Oral History of Punk, Rachel's friend Eileen Polk is quoted as saying, Rachel told me, I've met Lou Reed. I've made it. This is it. I knew this was going to happen. Something good was going to happen to me, and this is it, and I'm in love. In 1974, only a year after they'd begun living together, tragedy struck. Lou's longtime friend, trans woman and Warhol superstar, Candy Darling, died of a rare form of lymphoma. Reed would later say that he blamed her black market estrogen use for it, something everyone seems to agree on. Though, I find the claim medically dubious. We'll talk more about this in an upcoming episode on Candy's life. By the time 1975 rolled around, Lou was obsessed with Rachel. Lou missed Rachel so much on tour that he canceled his own tour to go back and see her in New York. They'd been spending every night together on the phone, but it wasn't enough. According to Jane Ashbury, he would spend hours on the phone to her, sleeping at night with the receiver off the hook and the call connected to New York so he could resume his conversation as soon as he awoke. In March 1977, Rachel and Lou even staged their own wedding, complete with a triple-decker wedding cake and exchange rings. While not legally binding, they both seemed to take the wedding seriously, for a time. Some close to Lou Reed described Rachel as elegant and interesting, a fascinating woman. Rachel's friend Eileen Polk described Rachel as nicer than the other queens and transsexuals, to her at least. She told Eileen her dick was too small for her to be a man, and after seeing it, Eileen agreed. She said proudly, well, it better be, because I make a better woman than I do a man. Rolling Stones journalist Ed McCormick wrote his recollections of Rachel in an article for Vanity Fair following Lou's death. He writes about waking up in Lou and Rachel's apartment after a long night of partying in 1975. Lowering my gaze to the zebra skin rug on the floor, I found a pale, delicate ankle, a hairless shin, a slender calf, and a rather bony knee, which quickly, coyly crossed as I glanced up over another knee under a blue silk kimono. This must be the lady of the house, I thought. She reminded me of Cher, only prettier, as she sat in a chair across from the sofa, holding a telephone receiver to an ear while studying me intently with large, dark eyes, curtained between sheets of shiny black hair. She was about to call someone on the phone. As she dialed, her silken kimono fell slightly away, revealing, for a second, a smooth, flat chest. And in a voice no more feminine than my own, the woman said, Well, this is her brother, and I just wanted to let her know I'll be away for a while. Tell her I'll call back. As long as I had known him, he had always cohabitated with one girl or another. But the recent gossip around Max's Kansas City was that he had taken up with a beautiful new transvestite muse called Rachel 
who he even took on tour with him. He had also dedicated the title track of the new album, one of his slow stream-of-consciousness monologues, more spoken than sung, to his new muse in the patter of a 1950s radio DJ. I'd like to send this one out for Lou and Rachel and all the kids at PS192. Now, looking at the fantastically androgynous person sitting opposite me, I thought of other lines from the same song. But remember that the city is a funny place, something like a circus or a sewer. And just remember, different people have peculiar tastes. When the person got off the phone, I asked, Where's Lou? Sleeping, said the person, for the first time in about three days. Is that all? Ignoring my sarcasm. How are you feeling today? Like shit. God, my fucking head. I looked at her. Have we met before? Don't you remember last night? Not really. You were really out of it. Lou was worried that you were so out of it, you might not know what you were doing. So we brought you back here to sleep it off. Oh, he's a real Jewish mother, Lou is, for a guy who's supposed to be setting such a bad example for the fucked up youth of America. Well, he doesn't like to see his friends getting into trouble, Rachel said. John Cale described her as a long-haired, long-limbed transvestite, though he doesn't appear to have meant any malice by it. Eileen Polk says of their relationship, Lou would just sit in the corner and Rachel would keep everyone away from him. She announced to everyone, I don't want anyone near him. I don't want anyone to talk to him. He's mine. And everyone respected that at the 82 Club. All the other drag queens stayed away from him, and all the women did, too. Rachel said, he's mine, but she didn't threaten anybody. I felt like everybody wanted something good to happen for her, and when it did, everyone was happy. Well, not everyone was so happy for her. Rock critic and sometimes friend of Reed, Lester Bangs, described Rachel in an article for Cream as... Long hair, bearded, tits, grotesque, abject, like something that might have grovelingly scampered in when Lou opened the door to get milk or papers in the morning. Upon reading this, Lou Reed was, in a word, furious. Later, hearing of Banks' death in 1982, Lou launched into a 45-minute character assassination on the late critic to guitarist Bob Quine. He ended by saying, Do you understand, Quine? This is a person I was close to, and he is calling her a creature. Though Bangs apologized, Reed never forgave him. Bangs would say before his death that his transphobic disparaging of Rachel was one of his only regrets. But not because of how he had hurt Rachel. He was sorry because it had ended his friendship with Lou Reed. Throughout the mid-70s, Lou and Rachel were inseparable. She became part of his image as a drug-addled bisexual glam rocker. And that is, unfortunately why she eventually had to go.
By 1978, only a year after their wedding, Rachel and Lou had split up, and Lou refused to speak about her publicly ever again. Lou was changing his image. The glam rock of the early 70s had given way to the cocaine-fueled bleakness of late 70s rock, best encapsulated by Reed's friend David Bowie's Berlin trilogy of albums. Reed put it like this, All the albums I put out after this are going to be things I want to put out. No more bullshit, no more dyed hair, faggot, junkie trip. I mimic me better than anyone else. So if everybody else is making money ripping me off, I figure maybe I better get in on it. Why not? I created Lou Reed. I have nothing even faintly in common with that guy, but I can play him well. Really well. Lou said his album Street Hassle was largely about their breakup, including the lines, Love has gone away, took the rings off my fingers, and there's nothing left to say. But oh, how I need him, baby. According to Bambi Magazine, one of the last things Lou ever said about Rachel is in relation to this album. They're not heterosexual concerns in those songs. I don't make a deal of it, but when I mention a pronoun, its gender is all important. At the end of Street Hassle, that person really exists. He did take the rings right off my fingers, and I do miss him. Lou would go on to marry twice more, first to British designer Sylvia Morales, and then, most notably, to performance artist Laurie Anderson, with whom he would stay for the rest of his life. He continued to have a successful and iconic career until his death in 2013. He is now best remembered for his song about the transsexuals and sex workers he knew in that period, Walk on the Wild Side. But whatever happened to Rachel? The truth is, no one seems to really know. The 1980s saw many people disappear from the art scene in New York due to drug overdoses and the outbreak of the AIDS epidemic. Throughout this period, little is known about Rachel's life. She doesn't appear to have stayed in contact with Lou or anyone else from that scene. She seems to have led a private life and, rumor has it, died in the early 90s. Even the circumstances of her death are unknown, and though we could speculate, I prefer to leave her end a mystery. Despite only showing up for about three years in Lou Reed's life, Rachel managed to inspire much of his most beloved solo efforts. But like so many trans women before her, once she became inconvenient, Rachel was tossed away. With little known about her life before Lou or after Lou, Rachel remains an enigma to this day. Rachel is really the embodiment of the transsexual as muse. Beautiful, glamorous, but still provocative in her outsider status, the transsexual muse exists only to inspire sexually ambiguous male artists like Reed, 
Bowie, Salvador Dali, Warhol, David LaChapelle, and Istvan Kantor. Unlike many of her transsexual muse contemporaries, such as Candy Darling, Amanda Lear, or Romy Hogg, Rachel is only remembered for her role as a muse. Her life has been entirely subsumed, consumed, by the man she was associated with. After he was done with her, or if you believe Lou's lyrics, she was done with him, Rachel ceased to exist in the eye of history. For much of the 20th century, being a celebrated transsexual muse for a famous male artist was the highest a trans woman could aspire to becoming in popular culture. It would take another decade before trans artists began receiving long overdue recognition all on their own. Arguably the first of whom Greer Langton will cover in a future episode. Some accounts view Rachel as a crass attempt on Lou's part to show his parents and, by extension, the world that they, quote, hadn't shocked the faggot out of him, end quote. But by Lou's own account, his romantic and sexual relationship with Rachel was real. Lou loved Rachel. And Rachel, in a time when trans women couldn't hold most jobs, Attaching yourself to a powerful man who could make you a star, albeit however briefly, was one of the only paths to economic mobility. But in addition to that, it seems clear that she really did love Lou. We'll never know what came between them. It's one of the most closely guarded secrets of Lou's career. But at least we'll always have the music. Thank you for listening to the first episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and thrilling tales from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in Montreal, Quebec, on the traditional territories of the Cree and Haudenosaunee. Research for this episode owes largely to the Dangerous Minds article by Richard Metzger, and other sources are credited in the show notes. If you like this show, please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever else these podcasts get put up. You can rate and review us on iTunes and tweet at me, at Morgan M. Page, on Twitter. I hope you'll join us next time as we take a look at another thrilling tale from trans history. Thank you and good night.